0: Uh, one of the false uh, heresies, one of the false understandings which was with the Ebionites, I know we closed off, or we, we last week we started with uh, two of the um, Roman emperors that was uh, very, very um, strict and, and uh, was very tough against the early Christian church so we discussed a little bit of their of their, um, uh, of their what's the word I'm looking for uh, but uh persecutions that they had towards the church. So I know we discussed uh, Diocletian and Decius last week, and we kind of got into one of the Jewish heresies, which is the Ebionites and that was one of the first attacks against the um, the um, the humanity of Jesus. So that was one of the first heresies that the church had to deal with, was against the heresy of um, the Ebionites, which is denying the, the deity of, of Christ. They taught of adoptionism, that Jesus was... was that he basically became the Messiah at his baptism. So he was born a regular man, not a virgin birth. He, they taught that uh, Jesus was born out of natural birth of Mary and Joseph. And at his baptism, he became the Messiah. Um, and he became the Messiah by obeying the Old Testament law. And so they later applied that to every believer, that if you wanted to be saved, we well, had to obey perfectly the Old Testament law. Um, <clears throat> So we discussed a little bit about that, and what I wanted to go through today was the heresy of Gnosticism. So last week, I think I passed out a flyer that kind of had a, a little diagram of Gnosticism. If you don't have it, uh, I know I have a couple of copies in the back, and I also passed out today the, uh, the Apostles' Creed, which is something I want to discuss, to discuss at the end. <clears throat> so I wanted to go into Gnosticism. Uh, a little bit of their theology and then a little bit of their Christology, which is which can be a little tricky to understand. But I'm trying to make it easy, trying to make it a little a little understandable. And if I have time, I wanted to go into two of the most influential Gnostics that the church had to uh, face during that time. But if I don't get into these two uh, into into Marcion and then Montanus, then I can leave those till next the next time that I teach uh, because what I wanted to do next time was the formulating of the New Testament canon. And both Marcion and Montanist had a, a huge influence on the, on the uh, formulating of the New Testament canon. So even if I don't get to them today, it'll still be a good segue next time to get into the New Testament canon. Uh, but I did just wanted to go through Gnosticism. And like I said, if I get if I get to it, I'll go through Marcion and Montanist. Uh, <clears throat> so Gnosticism <clears throat> is... Uh, it comes from the Greek word, which is gnosis, which means knowledge. And uh, what the Gnostics basically claim was a deep, profound knowledge that God only gave to a certain few. Uh, and, and so that's, the, that's, the, that's kind of where Gnosticism really comes from. And we even see that even John the Apostle had to deal with, uh, it looks like he had to deal with Gnosticism during his time. There's actually a quote from Polycarp, which was the disciple of the Apostle John. Uh, and the quote says that on one occasion, according to Polycarp, a student of John, the disciple, it says the apostle was entering the baths at Ephesus. It said, and inside he saw Serenthus, a well-known Gnostic, prepared to bathe. John, presumably garbed in a towel and a sour expression, rushed outside without taking a bath. And he said, let's flee before the baths fall in. Serenthus, the enemy of the truth, is inside. So there's, a, there's, there's a, an account here by Polycarp that that John had accounted one of these Gnostics, uh, most likely towards the end of his life. But <clears throat> we're going to see here in a little bit, I'm going to make a couple of uh, Scripture references that it seems that John is already discussing Gnosticism in his, in his epistles, and he's, he's already making these claims that, yes, Jesus was physically here. This is what we saw, what we touched, and uh, some of the things that is going against Gnosticism. Uh, <clears throat> but uh, like I mentioned, it was, uh, Gnosticism was a claim of special revelation, and that only God gave to a certain few. And that made it very, very difficult for the Christian church to debate these Gnostics because the Christian church would provide scripture references, they'd provide facts, and the Gnostics would pretty much at the end say, well, you know what, this is a special knowledge only given to me. You know, it really didn't, it wasn't given to Paul, it wasn't given to, to Peter or to any of the, the other disciples. You know, he's, he's given it directly to me. So, in a sense, my word kind of trumps over yours. So, that was definitely something that, that was. Um, that was very hard against the Gnostics. It was something that, that the church definitely struggled against. Um, in their theology, if you guys have your, your diagram that I passed out last week, I'm going to try to, to kind of go through it a little bit and try not to get into too much detail. But um, for their theology, one of the main things that we have to understand is what, uh, what most theologians call dualism. And it's, it's the, the, the main dilemma that the Gnostics tried to address was how to explain what we call theodicy. And theodicy is the, is the uh, explanation of evil. How exactly did evil originate? And so the Gnostics are trying to, trying to explain how this evil exists when there is a good God. And, and because of that, they get into what we call dualism, and, and they make a huge, long story out of this. Uh, dualism is basically a battle of good and evil. It is a, um, a battle of two ultimately equal powers. So they they have an understanding of good, and they have an understanding of evil, and they're both equally powered. One's really not that strong over the other, and in a sense, they're kind of going back and forth on winning battles. So, you know, the good will sometimes win a couple, and then the evil will win a couple of other ones. So they're going back and forth. And uh, they equated anything physical or matter to be evil, and anything spiritual to be good. So that's, that's kind of the, you know, the basis that we, we have to make sure we understand before we get into what their explanation of, of what, who was God in the Old Testament, who was Jesus Christ, uh, the creation of the world. To, to get a good basic understanding is <clears throat> the understanding of dualism, that anything physical or, ma- or material is evil and anything spiritual is good. So you really want to go after the spiritual. If you want to be good, you want to, you want to make sure you get to heaven, just go after the spiritual. You've got to deny anything materialistic or physical. <clears throat> um, so in their attempt, the Gnostics try to explain how a good God can exist and yet evil exists at the same time. And so uh, what, they'll, what they'll try to do is, is they'll start off uh, saying that there is an ultimately good God. And the, the name for this good God was called the Abyss. Abyss. And he is unapproachable and unknowable. So they know that a good, a good God exists. And um, <clears throat> his name is the Abyss. He is unapproachable, he's unknowable. And he lives in what they call the Pleroma, which is kind of the heavenly realm. He lives in his Pleroma. Nothing materialistic yet. It's, it's just nothing but spirit, spiritual there. Uh, the complete opposite of that is what is called a Kenoma, which is a materialistic realm. So there's, there's matter, it exists here, uh, which they would say that matter is eternal also. But in this Kenoma, it, there's, there's material there. It exists. Uh, but it's, it doesn't really have a form yet. So there's, we already have the Pleroma. We have the Kenoma. Uh, this abyss, this good, good God, is, is, exists only in the Pleroma. Uh, and what happens is that... <clears throat> Um, there's these ions that come out of the abyss. So the abyss kind of produces these ions. And what these ions are is they're kind of like divine attributes. And each one has a name. Some One would be, for example, mind. The other one would be reason. The other one would be power. Uh, and each ion that comes out of the abyss is weaker than the last one. So the first one that comes out is going to be the most powerful one and the most, most related to the abyss. And the last one that comes out is going to be the weakest one. And the last one that comes out actually even had a name. The last ion's name was Sophia. It was the weakest. And like I said, it was the last ion to come from the abyss. Uh, Many Gnostics debate on whether how many ions come out out of the abyss. But they know that it comes from the abyss and each one is going to be weaker than the last. Uh, And there is a fall in the Pleroma. So this last ion that comes out, Sophia had, for some reason, it had a desire to embrace the abyss. It wanted to know the abyss. Like I mentioned, the, the abyss is unknowable. Well, Sophia had the desire to know who the abyss was. And as the story goes, like I said, a lot of this may not make a whole lot of sense, but this is kind of how the Gnostics would describe it. The, Sophia leaps towards the abyss, trying to get to know who the abyss was, and falls from it. Uh, Sophia falls to the Konoma, which is, like I mentioned, is just, it's, it's all materialistic. It's the complete opposite of the Pleroma. It falls and it gives birth to what is called the Demiurge. And this Demiurge, later on, the Gnostics would say, is actually Yahweh of the Old Testament. So Sophia falls. It gives birth to the Demiurge, which is a type of deity, but it's also weaker than Sophia. So now we have the Demiurge as being the weakest uh, being of, of all of them. Uh, and it's this Demiurge that creates the world. It, like I said, this, this world is it, it's here. It's, it's materialistic, but it doesn't have a form. Uh, but the Demiurge gives it form. It creates the world. And uh, <clears throat> like I said, this Demiurge is seen by the Gnostics as, the, of, as Yahweh of the Old Testament. Uh, so what we can see here is there's, there's several people that we can see. we can see the, the abyss as being the most holy one, the, the, you know, the most spiritual one. And then you have the Ions. You had Sophia. And then the last one is Demiurge. So what, what the Gnostics are trying to do, they're trying to separate this good and holy God from anything materialistic. They don't want any kind of connection between the two. So they want to put a lot of space between the abyss and materialism. So, And because of that, you know, they have the abyss, you have probably millions of ions, and then you have Sophia, and then last is the Demiurge as being the one who creates the world. So they're trying to make this, this big separation between the two. Um, so that's kind of basically their, 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 their theology and how they start off. Uh, after that, they, they have their own understandings of who Christ was, and they're going to have their own under, understandings of who man is. So uh, I don't know if you guys have any questions so far. I don't know. Like I said, it might not make a whole lot of sense, but uh, their main idea, like I said, is dualistic. It's, there's the physical and the spiritual, and they're trying to separate the abyss, which is all good from anything materialistic. Yes, Jay. Yeah, yeah, it, it it does sound like it. Yeah, um, <clears throat> mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so me ask questions. So, I'm not sure. So, Sophia, you're saying is that the same as the demiurge? or Sophia, it it gave birth to the demiurge. Yeah. Right, and Sophia. Oh, I was just gonna say Sophia is the weakest ion of them all. Uh, because it was the last ion to come from the abyss. And because it gives birth to the demiurge, now the demiurge is the weakest one so far. Uh, it's not an ion, per se, as, as coming from the abyss. But it, 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 it is, in a way, a type of deity because he has the ability to create. But he's even weaker than Sophia still. So uh, I, think, I think I was reading on, uh, on Bruce Shelley's book. He was saying that one theologian, I can't remember who it was. But he was basically saying that the ions have the ability to create, but they're just not foolish enough to actually create. So they're, they're powerful in a way, not as powerful as the abyss. They have power, they can create, but they're not, they're not foolish enough to, to actually create a world. Because, again, the whole idea is anything materialistic is evil. So they're trying to stay away from, from anything like that. So you're saying they're trying to explain how this good God, or good, you call, it's called the abyss. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, how can, how can that abyss exist and yet anything materialistic, which is evil, exists at the same time? And, and they're, they're trying to put the blame on this Demiurge, saying that the Demiurge is the one who creates this world. And, and then they're still trying to retain that there is a good and holy God. So there is a creator God, but he's not the good and holy God that we've seen uh, as the abyss. And, and, and they, they equate the Demiurge... As the God of the Old Testament. Yeah. That's really Aaron. To me and my team, I've been memorizing this. What's Mr. Short Catechism? hmm. And when it talks about the creation, it's totally opposite from mm-hmm. this. Yes. It says, What is the creation of the world? The creation of the world is that God created all things out of nothing by the word of his power in the space of six days and all very good. hmm. It's interesting. I yeah. And, and the Gnostics couldn't agree with that. They couldn't say that it was all very good. They, they, they can't say that anything physical is good. Only the spiritual aspect of it is, but not the physical. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> in their Christology, because of this dual, we have to, like I said, we have to keep in mind this dualistic understanding. In their Christology, Jesus was not God incarnate. So they did not agree that Jesus had both a human nature and a divine nature in one. Uh, I know we, we've seen in confessions and creeds that stress that Christ was fully human and fully God, all in one. Uh, and Gnostics would not agree with that. And there's two views on Jesus that existed during this time. The first one, which is the less popular one, uh, was that Jesus and the Christ were not the same persons. Uh, Jesus was just a mere man. He was just a regular man. But the Christ was actually an ion. He was actually the first ion that came from the abyss. So he was, because he was the first one, he was the most powerful one. And he was the most closely related to the abyss. So Jesus and the Christ ion are two separate beings. Uh, Jesus, the man, was just a mere man, um, regular human birth. And this Christ ion descended on Jesus at his baptism. So it sounds almost like a little bit of the Ebionites, But the Evie are trying to deny the deity of Christ, where here the Gnostics are trying to deny the humanity of Christ. Um, So this this Jesus Ion descended on on Jesus at his baptism, and it left right before the crucifixion. I think even some Gnostics try to say that it left at the Garden of Gethsemane, right before he was captured. So this Christ Ion only exists during the time of his baptism, to right before his crucifixion. Um, They say that only the man Jesus died on the cross because... an ion can't be killed, and they also deny the resurrection. Um, and I know we can see in First John chapter two, verse twenty-two. I think John here is making a reference to this under- misunderstanding of Jesus. It says, "Who is a liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. So there's no separation between Jesus and the Christ. He is one. There's there's no Ion that comes and, and descends on him for only a certain amount of time and then leaves. Uh, <clears throat> so that was one of the views. The second view, which was the most popular view during his time, it was basically that there's no distinction between Jesus the man and the Christ Ion. There's no distinction between the two. Jesus, being the heavenly Ion, he is the Christ Ion, so they would probably be okay with 1 John 2, But they would say that he came to earth... But he only seemed to appear to be here. Uh, this is what we call the asceticism. Uh the asceticism comes from the Greek word dekeo, which means to seem. Uh, and so they would say that Jesus only appeared to be materialistically here. He looked like he was here, but if you went to go touch him or anything like that, he wasn't really here. It was just a physical aspect of him, or the physical aspect was missing. Only the spiritual part was him was really here. Um, because of that, because he wasn't physically here, he had no body, he had no flesh, the suffering and the resurrection were not real either. A spirit can't suffer, a spirit can't be resurrected. Um, Jesus, uh, they said that Jesus could not have any type of contact with anything material. So this is, like I said, this is the most popular view that Jesus wasn't actually physically here. He only seemed to be here. Uh, but it was just the Christ ion, this, this spiritual ion that was really here, uh, and nothing physical of him. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 2 through 3, we see that, "...by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God, this is the Spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that he is coming." And now it is already in the world. So we see that First John already is, is saying, no, it's, he's come in the flesh. He was physically here. There's no distinction between this Christ ion and no connection with anything materialistic. So he was physically here. Um, so like I said, those are the two views on, on Christ that, that existed. He either was a mere man that had the Christ ion ascended on him or... He was the Christ ion here, but he wasn't physically here. He had no body. He was just, he was just a, the, the spiritual aspect of him. Uh, and then we see in 1 John chapter 1, I know you guys remember this one. It says, What was from the beginning, what we, have, uh, what we have heard, and what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at, and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. So he's, John is really stressing the fact that we saw him. He was physically here. We even touched him. Uh, <clears throat> So those were the two views on Jesus Christ. Uh, the Gnostics would say that the purpose of Jesus was not to, not to come to atone for our sin, but to free our spiritual aspect from the human physical body so that we may return to the Pleroma. So the reason that Jesus came wasn't to free us from our sins. It wasn't so that he can die for our sins and, and, and we can have his righteousness so that we can, we can uh, inherit eternal life. But they said that our our spiritual Our our spirits are are basically enslaved to these physical bodies. So, again, they're making that distinction. You have a spirit, but you also have a physical body. They're both in opposition to each other, so we want to free those two. What Christ did was he came so that he can free your spirit and it can leave this physical body. So, again, they're making that dualistic understanding that uh, he came to free your spirit. How do we receive this liberation from our bodies? The Gnostics said that the only way you can be free spiritually free from your body, was a special knowledge, which is, again, only given to a certain few. So if you, had, if you attain the special knowledge that God would give, then you can really be liberated from this physical body. Um, <clears throat> uh, just real quick on their understanding of the Holy Spirit. They said that the Holy Spirit was a lesser ion than the Christ Spirit, and it assisted Christ in His works. So that's pretty much the only thing they, they really had on the Holy Spirit. He is, a, he is a spiritual ion, and his purpose was to assist Christ in his works. Um, they had a whole story for the final great redemption. Why did the Christ Ion come? And they would say that the, that the Christ shows mercy to Sophia, which is that Ion that fell because it embraced the abyss. So Christ shows mercy to the Sophia and brings her back to the Pleroma and marries her. So a lot of these stories, are, are they, they seem very biblical. They, they, it seems that they get these stories from the Old Testament. You, know, you have the fall of Sophia, which sounds like the fall of Lucifer in the Old Testament and then you have this marriage between the Christ Ion and Sophia uh, so they said that the Christ Ion later marries Sophia and restores the Pleroma back to harmony so that was kind of the, 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 the purpose of redemption here for the Christ Ion um, if you guys don't have any questions I'll try to get through the anthropology real quick and then, um, and then I'll get into the, the uh, church's response to Gnosticism, uh, their understandings of man or their anthropology was that man existed in three different forms. You had the pneumatics, you had the psychics, and you had the hilux. Uh There's two groups of people that can be saved, and the last group uh, were were unbelievers were were not saved. For the first group of the saved, were called the pneumatics. These people were the very spiritually enlightened ones. Um, and at death, their spirit was liberated from their body. Again, you're separating the physical from the spiritual. Their spirit is liberated from their bodies, and they float back to the pleroma, back to where the abyss is. So those are the pneumatics. The second group that were saved were called the psychics. These people, uh, they're saved, but they really didn't attain that real, that real knowledge that God gave out. So, so they're, they're saved in a way, but they didn't have that real special deep knowledge that, that God gave to the certain few. The only thing that they had which would save them was their faith. And so what they, what, who they saw as the ones as being the, the psychics were the Orthodox Christians. So Athanasius, Ignatius, Clement of Rome, they would say that there were psychics, they're saved because they had faith, uh, but they, don't, they, don't, they didn't really attain to this deep, deep knowledge that God gave out. <clears throat> um, so because they were unable to attain the real knowledge... Uh, they were saved, but they were not saved the same way as the pneumatics. And at death, uh, they would go to this middle world. They wouldn't go to the Pleroma, which were the, where it was where the abyss was, uh, but they wouldn't go to hell either. So they, they kind of just lingered in right in the middle between the Pleroma and the kenoma. So uh, as a psychic, you were saved, but you, know, you really didn't get that, that deep knowledge, uh, as the Gnostics did, which they said they received. Uh, and the last group were the Hylics, And these were basically carnal unbelievers who lived in sin. And simply at death, they would go to eternal punishment. Uh, so these were the three groups. The pneumatics, the psychics, and the Hilux. Um, interestingly, the, the Gnostics kind of had a, a, a understanding of predestination. Um, like I said, if you wanted to really be saved, God would give you this deep, deep understanding. And God would choose who exactly would receive this deep knowledge. So... In a way, in predestination, they would say that only God had selected a few who would have received this deep understanding and this deep knowledge. So it was a bit of a weird and twisted understanding of predestination. Uh, In response to this, the Gnostics had two different styles of living. One of it was very ascetic, uh, again, because of their understanding that anything physical and materialistic was evil. So they abstained from certain foods. Uh, they abstained from sensuality. They hated the body and even refrained from certain foods and sexual relations. Uh, the other group, very, very weird, but they said that the only way to overcome sensuality was to completely indulge in it. So they, two, two completely opposite groups, very, very different extreme groups. Uh, so in this group, uh, uh, because of this understanding, you can imagine there was no law, there were no rules, and there was a, uh, it, it led to a lot of debauchery. So, uh, you had two groups of uh, Gnostics on what they would, under, under lifestyles. So, they were either ascetics <clears throat> or they lived in a, into, into um, debauchery. Um, before I, if I have time to get into Marcion and Montanist, I wanted to look through the um, response of the church. And what the church basically used was the Apostles' Creed, which I think was passed out earlier today. Uh, and I just wanted to go through four quick points on the Apostles' Creed. <clears throat> and in it, um, I don't have it with me. I didn't get a copy, but I have it here. Uh, basically, the Apostles' Creed, I'm going to read it off of the, um, this app I have with confessions and creeds. It says, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, Dead and buried, he descended into hell. The third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. <laughs> uh, so, real quick, the Apostles' Creed was was first seen in the second century. It was used almost as a baptismal confession. So if you were going to be baptized, you would repeat the, the Apostles' Creed and affirm what it was teaching. Um, I know that about three-fourths of the way down, it mentions the Holy Catholic Church. Because it was made in the second century, it was used during the second century, the, Catholic, the, the Roman Catholic Church, as we understand it now, didn't exist at that time. So the Apostles' Creed isn't really, it's not making an endorsement to the Catholic Church that we understand today. So when it's mentioning the, I know Pastor Jay has already discussed this, but when it mentions the Holy Catholic Church, it's, it's mentioning the universal church that existed during that time. So, the, you know, a lot of the churches were very, were, were local. There was a church in Rome. There was a church in, uh, of Antioch. But when it mentioned the Catholic Church, it mentioned as, as the universal church in their agreement of these doctrines. Uh, so I know a couple of times I already mentioned some of the disagreements that the church had, especially with its structure on the offices. Well, these were things that the, all the churches pretty much agreed on. So um, <clears throat> the, the church in response to Gnosticism used the, creed, the, the Apostles' Creed uh, in response to the false teachings of the Gnostics. Uh, one of the things that we first see is that it teaches clearly on the Trinity. It mentions the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Even though the creeds Purpose isn't to, to, to give out an, a profound understanding of the Trinity. So the, the, the creed wasn't necessarily written so that we can have a deep and profound understanding of the Trinity, but it does make mention of it. So they, they, they had an understanding of the Father, of the Son, and the Holy Spirit, but its purpose wasn't necessarily to, to expound on that. It wasn't so that we can have a deep and profound understanding of the Trinity, but it does make mention of it. Uh, it acknowledges God as God Almighty so it's, it's referencing to God the Father as God Almighty and the maker of heaven and earth so that right there eliminates the abyss the understanding of the abyss the ions and the demiurge there's no distinction between any of that the, 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 the early church would say that God the Father is God Almighty and creator of heaven and earth so they're already eliminating pretty much half of the Gnostics misunderstandings uh, <clears throat> It's going against dualism that the world was created by by a lesser being, a lesser god, <clears throat> and they would say that it's uh, that creation should be enjoyed by man. So uh, it's definitely going against that dualistic understanding of the Gnostics. Jesus Christ is said <clears throat> his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. It says that he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, buried, and then later he was resurrected from the dead. So uh, they're acknowledging the virgin birth from Mary. They're acknowledging that he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. So you see the physical aspect of Christ here. He wasn't some, some spiritual being that was just floating here. But he was actually physically here. He had a body, a body that was crucified, that he was buried and then rose from the dead. So it's denying any kind of uh, ascetic understandings of Christ. <laughs> they're affirming the crucifixion and the burial. And this was definitely something that the Gnostics could not agree with. And you see the stress that the church is uh, is making on the humanity of Christ. So they're staying away from any ascetic understandings. Uh, And then lastly, you see the resurrection of the flesh at the end. Uh, So again, the church is not making a distinction here that anything physical is bad and all the spiritual is good. Christ, I'm sorry, God the Father will resurrect our flesh one day so the body was given so that we can enjoy here on earth we use it in obedience to god so that we may glorify him but we also see that god will one day resurrect it so there shouldn't be any kind of distinctions as saying anything materialistic or anything uh our bodies are 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 evil and we should only seek the, the the spiritual aspect of it so they're definitely making that distinction between the two uh so if anybody has any questions so far Before I try to get into uh, Marcion. Yes, Jay. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, there's, there's, I know there's, there's uh, different understandings on that. And I think I would be okay if, if I let you try to understand it or try to explain it. (laughs) Well, I, I, I know, I know there's, there's, there's been debate on that, you know, and... Right. What our scriptures say will not be my soul in 80s. But but I think what we can say what it doesn't say or what we don't believe what it doesn't mean that God that Jesus actually went to hell mm-hmm. like the place of conscious eternal torment mm-hmm. where he was tormented by the devil which is what some of the pagans Right. We, don't think that. Maybe we could refer that he bore the pains of hell on a cross. Mhm. Right. And, and, I th- and I think the understanding that, that, he was, that he was buried for three days, that he, he was actually physically dead for three days, I think would, would, be a, uh, very, would be a very good understanding of it, especially in the context of the Gnostics, because they would say that they not only denied the, his death, but they denied his resurrection as well. So with that understanding, you, I, I can see the church emphasizing that he not only died, but he was actually physically dead and buried for three days. So that body was in the tomb for three days. It wasn't that this ion either went back to the pleroma, or it was just a physical aspect, and then he never really died. But I, th- it, it, I think it would be a good understanding to say that <clears throat> the the creed is 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 really stressing the fact that he was physically here. He he was born, he was uh, he was crucified, he was buried, and then he he was resurrected after after the third day. So. Uh, I think that would be a good understanding, especially because of the gnostic context you know they're they're denying any physical aspect of of Christ being here, so I think that would be a a, a good understanding so yes <laughs> okay uh yes yeah yeah definitely mm-hmm. um i'll try to go through these uh I only have two two of the the biggest Uh, Gnostics that existed during this time that I wanted to go through. Uh, One of them was Marcion, and he was during the second century, and he was a wealthy ship owner. And Marcion was probably the most influential heretic in the second century. And I know he was a a Gnostic, so we're not going to go... I mean, I'm not going to... You're not going to see a whole lot of difference between him and and regular Gnosticism, but he had a huge purpose later on for the church. Um, uh, Marcion was the son of of a bishop, which... He was later excommunicated because of his Gnostic teachings. So because Marcion was excommunicated by his father, he later attends the Church of Rome and was later excommunicated there because of Gnosticism. So he later starts his own church. And I can't remember which areas exactly, but his, his understandings really grew during that time. So he actually ended up planting plenty of churches during his time. Um, Marcion because of his uh, influence of Gnosticism, he believed in a dual, in dualism. He believed in the Demiurge as the Old Testament God. And that was something really huge uh, to have a good understanding of, that he really did not believe uh, that the Old Testament God was the one that sent Jesus Christ. So the Old Testament God is, is in a way, kind of evil. He's... you know, he's, he's kind of, he's just weird. He's twisted because he created this world and anything physical material is evil. So he still believes that the Demiurge was the Old Testament God. Um, But the God of the New Testament that sends Jesus Christ, well, that's the abyss. He sends one of his ions so that he can redeem our physical uh, selves from our, I'm sorry, our spiritual selves from our physical selves. So he's trying to make that, that salvation from the two. Um, his views on the Demiurge was that he brought sin into the world in the Old Testament. Uh, and he said that the Demiurge was, in a way, ignorant. Uh, he looks at what happened with Adam in the Garden of, of Eden. He says that God asked Adam where he was in the garden. So right there, Marcion is taking that, well, that God of the Old Testament. He really doesn't know what's going on. Uh, he says that, that the God of the Old Testament, the Demiurge, contradicts himself because he command he the commandment the second commandment to have no idols and then later he sets up this bronze serpent to heal the israelites so he's he has a very very simple understanding of the old testament a lot of misunderstandings of it and uh, again he's 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 thinking that the old testament god is this demiurge this lesser being who created everything Uh, and he sees the old testament god as severe and harsh he sees the eye for an eye and the tooth for a tooth. So he doesn't see he as very merciful and loving like the one in the, Old, in the New Testament. The New Testament God, he says, is all good. He sent Christ, and he's loving and always forgiving. So, so we see that he's, he's making a distinction between the New Testament and the Old Testament God. Uh, his Christology, he distinguishes the Messiah of the Old Testament from the Messiah of the New Testament. Uh, I think he even ended up saying that the, the Messiah that was promised in the Old Testament hasn't even come yet. Of course, that was back in the 2nd century. But he said that, the, that the, the the Israelites were still waiting for their, for their Messiah from the Old Testament. Uh, but this, G, this Jesus from the New Testament, he's, he's a completely different Messiah. <laughs> um, he said that Jesus rejected the law. He brings salvation and forgiveness. Uh, because of his ascetic understandings, he denied that Christ had a body. So Christ was just here as a, as a spiritual ion. Uh, and he was not born of a woman. So... Uh, he says that, that this Jesus Ion basically descended from heaven as an adult. So he's, he's very, very influenced by Gnostic uh, dualism and asceticism. <clears throat> um, his view of Christ uh, is all-loving and forgiving. And because of that view, it was, it was a huge attraction for many uh, during that time. So a lot of people really, really like that understanding that, that this Christ Ion was forgiving and loving. Uh, and uh, his his, I don't want to get too much into it because I want I kind of want to leave it to uh, when I just start discussing the formulating of the New Testament canon. But basically, Marcion what he did was again because of his, his views of the Old Testament, he completely eliminates the Old Testament from the canon. He says the Old Testament the Old Testament wasn't necessary for the church, so he removes the complete the entire Old Testament, uh, and the only thing he really accepts from the New Testament canon was was I think ten letters of Paul. Uh, anything that has anything Jewish-related, uh, he, he, he eliminates it. So the Gospels, he eliminates uh, Matthew, Mark, and John, and I think he only accepts a, a few of the claims of Luke. Uh, he definitely eliminates the virgin birth and all those kind of things of Jesus, anything that referenced Jesus having a, a physical body. But he had parts of Luke and ten letters of Paul. So his, his, his understanding of, of the New Testament canon was very influential for the church later on. The church would, would look at this list that Marcion had and they would start formulating their list of the canon. So <clears throat> that was basically the, the, the understanding of, of Marcion and how he influenced the formulating of the New Testament canon. Like I said, I, I, I'm not going too deep into it because when we start discussing the New Testament canon, I'll, I'll try to discuss a little bit more on what his beliefs were during that. And uh, the, la- the other... Uh, that I want to discuss was was Montanus. And he was during the second, the third century. Uh, so the end of the second to the beginning of the third century. <laughs> and Mount, uh, Montanus was, the, was, uh, was from Asia Minor. He was from the, a town called Phrygia. Uh, and he was once a cult priest, which, this is really important, he practiced uh, ascetic religious practices. I'm sorry, not ascetic. Ecstatic religious practices. So, uh, he kind of carried all all of that over into the uh, into the Christian church. Uh, he claimed direct ex, uh, ecstatic revelation from God. And during these ecstatic revelations, what, what happened was that he would lose consciousness and he said he wouldn't have control over what he would say. So I think even some of the claims were that his eyes would roll back and you would just see the white of his eyes and he'd start talking and said that he wasn't really the one talking. He was just kind of the mouthpiece of God. He was... He was speaking everything that God wanted him to speak. Uh, he claimed that he was the mouthpiece of God through the Holy Spirit and he had two priestesses with him. These priestesses were Priscilla and Maximilla and they left their husbands and their family to join Montanus. Um, these priestesses also prophesied and were um, and were <clears throat> some of the prophecies that they had were very, very simple and basic stuff that we can even see in scripture. They Prophesied that there would be wars, political divisions, and uh, that was pretty much it. So it wasn't very, very profound under under prophecies of what was going to happen. Um, they called themselves Montanists, and these priestesses they called themselves the real spiritual Christians, and anyone else besides them were carnal Christians. So it's it, again, you can see the influence of Gnosticism. They're they're the ones getting the real understanding, the real knowledge of God. Uh, Anybody else, well, you're just, you're not on par with us. You're a little lower than us. You know, you you don't have the true understanding of God. We do. Uh, So uh, even Montanus claimed to be even more important than the bishop. And the bishop, (laughs) I haven't gone too much into it, but but during that time, as you can understand, the bishop was a huge role for the church because of the claims of Gnosticism uh, as having this real direct, knowledge from God, the bishops would, would kind of be the ones to step up and claim what the scriptures really said. So, so the bishops were seen as huge leaders for the church at that time, especially combating against Gnosticism or even uh, Marcion. So uh, because of the influence that the, that the bishops had, Marcion comes along and says, look, we're even more important than bishops, so you need to really listen to us. Um, uh, Montanus actually believed in the deity of Christ, so he, he denied any demiurge or abyss, um, he, but he did believe in the continuation of prophecy uh, he permitted female clergy as long as the clergy and anything that, that was supposed to be qualified during that time was that you had to be used by the Holy Spirit so if you were used by the Holy Spirit you can be a priest you can be a priestess um, but as long as you were used by the Holy Spirit so um, <clears throat> the last thing was that they taught Christians not to avoid persecution but actually pursue it so that was, uh, that was something that they, that they definitely taught um, so that's pretty much what uh, Marcion and uh, Montanus was. And like I said, these two were, were, were especially influential in the aspect that it forced the church to, to, to formulate its own canon. Uh, by the time that Marcion comes and Montanus comes, the church by that time had already a list of, 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 of uh, scripture, what they thought was, was canonical, what they thought, what they thought was uh, truly inspired by God. They had the Gospels. They had a couple of letters of Paul. Um, so they had that list already, but what happens with Marcion is that he comes in and he, and he really forces the church to, to not only completely formulate it, to have a complete list of it. Which letters are we going to accept from Paul? Which ones are we going to accept from Peter? Should we accept the, 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 the book of Hebrews? And should we accept the book of Revelation from John? Because John at that time wasn't the only, um, so to speak, it wasn't the only book of Revelation during that time. It was any, there was other apocalyptic books that, that was being circulated during that time. So the church was definitely uh, circulating some some non-canonical books, some books that were not inspired. But because of Marcion, the church is forced to formulate it, to complete it. And because of Montanus, uh, Montanus forces the church to, to completely close the canon. So Montanus comes along saying that they're, the, they're now the new mouthpiece of God. They're communicating these these real spiritual truths that God's given them. And the church is now forced to close that canon. So Marcion forces the church to formulate it. Montanist forces the church to completely close the canon because they're they're not believing uh, Marcion as being a pro, as a prophet as being the mouthpiece of God. Um, so I don't know if anybody has any questions uh, to this point. Now, <laughs> that's pretty much all I had for for uh, Gnosticism. Uh, I know I mentioned Marcion and Montanus. And uh, just real quick, uh, I think we can still see some influence of Gnosticism today. Uh, I think there's still some people who, even I think in Christian circles, that believe that there's still an equally ultimate battle between good and evil. You know, they think that God is still fighting against Satan, that good is, is winning a couple of battles and the evil is still winning a couple of battles. And I think this dualism still exists in many people's minds. <clears throat> I know that... Uh, the, there's, there's a the whole yin and yang, the Taoism with, you know, the good side and the bad side, and that, that battle, that struggle is still existing, um, <clears throat> I even mentioned it to my wife just the other day, and it's kind of funny, but uh, I'm not trying to discourage anybody from actually watching it, but you see even popular movies like Star Wars, you know, where you have the good side and the bad side, you know, make sure you don't go down the, the evil path, don't go down that bad side, you you want to stay on the good side, you know, because. <laughs> it seems that you know, it can be just as powerful as that side and as this side so um, I think you know, dualism can still, still exist in the minds of many uh, I don't know how many times I've seen in, um, in social media you know, where, where they post pictures of I've seen it where, where Jesus is arm wrestling Satan you know? and that stuff still, still exists today you know, those, those kind of mentalities, those kind of ideas still exist today uh, but biblically I think we can see it's, it's not a real war that exists in between the two. Um, so uh, I think that's something that we that we all have to be careful to not fall into. <clears throat> um, so that's pretty much all I had for today. I don't know if anybody has any questions or comments. Yes. The churches is the Mhm. Mm-hmm. by that God's people from the group of Satan that mm-hmm. actually Christ was dying in order to ransom people from the wrath of God. Right. And so that's a huge difference because that's putting Satan and God on an equal level. Right. God is actually over hmm so Even though that, that may seem like a really minuscule thing mm-hmm. and a lot of people miss that, that's huge. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. A big difference in our understanding of Christ. hmm Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that was something I wanted to bring up with uh, some of those early church theologians, because even some of those ear- earliest theologians actually had that misunderstanding. And I think the majority of them were uh, were ones that that came out of this uh, Greek philosophical background. And as they became Christians, they kind of brought that baggage with them. So they're, they're trying to they're, they're, they're trying to put Greek philosophy and, and Christianity hand to hand together. And, and they're trying to mix the two. And because of that, we have misunderstandings of uh, the ransom theory, and we have uh, allegorical understandings. So they're, they're still kind of bringing those understandings, those Gnostic understandings, and they're saying, well, yeah, you know, I, I know you can, you can read the New Testament, you, you see Paul's letters, but especially I think Origen was, was guilty of this, but he would say, you know, there's, there's a deeper understanding than this. There's a double understanding of it. So you have the simple understanding, and that's great, but there's also this other understanding, this allegorical understanding, and you know you you really have to see that one too, and we can see that's that's almost like a gnostic type of idea, yes mm-hmm mm-hmm, yeah mm-hmm yeah, and, and, and it, it sounds very similar to it. You know, they, they, they claim that, that God spoke to them, only to them, you know, that it, it was a, a word given only to them. And so they have this other deeper understanding, apart from Scripture. You know, they couldn't claim, they, they, they can't quote a Scripture to actually fit what they're actually saying. Uh, and, and thankfully, though, is, is that at least these, uh, this, uh, this Word of Faith movement doesn't claim the same thing that the Gnostics would say. And that was the Gnostics said, well, this is on par with Scripture itself. And so, you know, the Gnostics would even say, look, you need to listen to us before you listen to, your, before you listen to your bishop who is expounding Scripture. So the Gnostics will go a step further. But, yeah, I think the word of faith, we can see that it, it, it does seem very similar to it, you know, where, where uh, you know, they're, they're, they're claiming direct revelation from God uh, just like the Gnostics did. Yeah. Yes, Jay. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And and, and and like I mentioned, you know, the the, the church is really struggling during this times, you know, they're they're and, and and we keep this in mind that, you know, the Gnostics are battling the you know, the we have Marcion and we have Montanus here and at the same time they're still struggling against the, the Roman persecution. So they're 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 fighting too. It's not like you know the persecution is done and now they're going on to Gnosticism and they're fighting against uh, you know, Marcion, but they're, they're struggling on both ends. They're, they're, they're trying to, to, to maintain this this biblical doctrine, you know, of, of the, the sufficiency of scripture. You know, we have the inspired word of God and they're, they're, they're fighting against these Gnostics, but at the same time, they're struggling to survive this Roman persecution. So while, there's, while they're fighting against these Gnostics, they're also trying to stay alive from, from this Roman persecution. So... Um, like I said, you know, next time I'd, I'd like to get into the formulating of the New Testament canon so that we can see just how, how valuable the scriptures were during this time and how it's, it still continues to be valuable for us today. Um, so if there's any more comments, well, I'll go ahead and close in prayer. <clears throat> okay, let's pray.